You're listening to the English Ministry Podcast of Chinese Christian Church Thousand Oaks. Join us every Sunday at 11 a.m. Find out more at english.cccto.org. So we are in the story, okay? And this has been going on for the last 10 weeks. We are in the 10th lesson of the story. We did miss one week two weeks ago. And we're going to do a summary of Ruth in just a little bit. But so far, as we have gone through the story, we began with creation, and now today we're going to be talking about the end of the Judges, and we're going to be learning more about what God's doing as he is about to anoint Saul as king, and later David as king, as we'll look in the coming weeks. But as we are reading through the story, it is this book, and many of you have it, and some of you who don't have it, we do have lots of extra copies, and I'll bring them out just after the service. There'll be some up here, and there'll be some out in the lobby you can get. And the story is 31 chapters that help us to learn from Genesis to Revelation what God is doing. And so I just want to remind us what the goal of the story is. So the goal of the story is to help us to read the whole Bible, but all of us to read the Bible together so that we know the story that God has written from Genesis to Revelation. And so this is all Bible, but it is abbreviated Bible. But it helps us to go in chronological order from Genesis to Revelation. The second goal of the story is to inspire us to love God more. The more you read God's Word, the more you know God's Word, the more you know God. And the more you know him, the more you will love him. And so we want you to enjoy reading God's word and to study it with a zeal so that you are able to obey God and to know the blessings of obedience. Every parent knows their child's well-being will be far better if they obey the parent. Right, mom and dad? Right? Obedience leads to blessings. And as a kid, we also learn that too because disobedience leads to punishment, right? Disobedience leads to discipline, but obedience leads to learning how to live the way mom and dad want us to live, which most of the time is right, 99% of the time. And God wants us to know that 100% of the time that we obey his word, we are doing the things that lead to a better life. And so God wants us to obey. Now, we can't obey his word if we don't know his word. So I want to encourage you to be reading it. As we began, every chapter is about 12 to 15 pages. So if you read two to three pages a day, you'd read through the whole chapter in a week. Um, And then we also are helping you so that you can learn it in a way that's even easier. You can listen to it. And so if you go to our church website or you get the MailChimp, um, in the MailChimp, you'll get that every week. But over here on the left-hand side, in the sidebar, there's a place called Listen on the Go. And so last week, you see chapter 10, Standing Tall, Falling Hard. That's this week's chapter. So in about 25 to 30 minutes, if you're driving, you can hear it read professionally. And then there's also, I'm going to ask Michelle to add one more thing, and you're going to see a video in just a little bit. In a video, they have 31 video summaries of each chapter. And in three minutes, you get a visual summary of each chapter. And so literally, if you read the scriptures, it'll take you about half an hour or less to read it. It actually takes longer to listen to it. And then if you read, the, listen and watch the summary, you'll have a picture of what God is teaching us in his word. And so God wants us to know the Bible. Why is that so important? It's important because God cares about our lives here on earth. 
what we're calling the lower story. The lower story is what's happening right here in your lives. So your lives matter to God. You are going through different struggles. You are making difficult decisions. You are making choices every day. And you look out on the world and you see a horizontal perspective. You see what's going on. And sometimes you don't see, like, I'm going to make this decision. Is it the right decision? I don't know. I made a decision and things didn't turn out very right. Maybe I made the wrong one. Or you may even think, wow, I made a great decision and everything looks really great. But then later on, things fall apart. And you wonder, what is God doing? So that is our lower story. But what's so important as we're reading the story is to know there is an upper story. There's an upper story. Um, When I was a youth and I was coming to know Jesus in 1972, in the late 1960s, there was a Jesus movement. And there was a sign that was really popular in the the Jesus movement. Now, you know, you see sports athletes do it. They'll cross themselves. They score a touchdown. And then they do this, right? They point to the sky. Well, that, that began in the late 60s. And that was pointing to God one way. Okay, so can you all do that with me? Can you just take your finger and point to the sky? All right, that's God's upper story, all right? That's reminding us that God is in control and that even though on our perspective, on a horizontal level, we can't see everything, God sees everything. And even the things that we may not think are going so well, God still has a plan. God's still in control. And we're going to see that in today's message. That is the upper story. Now, in this past couple of weeks, we have been living in a very difficult lower story. And two weeks ago, uh, we skipped the message of Ruth, chapter 9, so that we could have a lesson that I taught about how do we endure tragedy. How do we face sorrows that come upon us in evil ways? How do we find comfort in those difficult times? And I shared with you, if you were here, about um, me going over to the teen center, which was that they called it the reunification center. And so pastors were meeting over at the teen center to meet with family and friends that were waiting word on those who were shot, who hadn't heard from them. And so knowing that our church was right across the street from Los Robles Hospital and assuming that many of those who were hurt were taken to that hospital, I went over to the scene center. I met with the sheriffs. I introduced myself and I said that, you know, I'm a pastor of the church right across the street. And if you need us for anything, just come on over. We'll open up the doors for you. You can use the building. But also as a pastor, if there's anybody that I could counsel, comfort, talk to, um, I'd be happy to. And so they said, go ahead, go over into the waiting room, and if there's anybody there and you see that you want to talk to them, just go ahead. So I went to the waiting room, and there was a young couple, two college students, and I spoke to them. And I asked them, what are you doing here? Who are you waiting for? And they said, well, um, one of our friends, Blake, is missing, and we know that he was at Borderline, and we don't know what happened. Well, at that time, we knew that 12 people had already been declared to have died. Uh, But they didn't know if Blake was one of them. And they were very worried, and and they obviously they were very uh, downcast. And so I didn't know them, but I just said, you know, can I pray for you? And honestly, I didn't know what to say in that situation. But I prayed for two things. I prayed that we would remember that God is good. That even in the midst of tragedy and difficulty, God is good. 
And then the second thing I prayed for was that Blake would be okay, that he would be safe, that they would find him. Well, later that day, I found out that Blake indeed was shot, that he had died. And I thought back to those two people, and I wondered, I wonder what they think now. I wonder if my words saying that God is good, did that fall onto a hard heart? Did it make it more difficult for them? The fact that I prayed that Blake would be safe and he was one of those that was shot, what would they think of me? What would they think of Christians? What would they think of, of God? And I wondered. But I knew that I had just done my best, and I went to Blake's memorial. So I looked online to see if I could find where Blake's memorial was, and um, so I went to it. It was over in Newbury Park, and I thought, well, maybe I'll run into those two. And um, oh, one of them, and I, I could just see them again. But I, there were a lot of people, and it was dark, and, I, and it was outside, and I couldn't see. And I, we didn't run into them. Um, and so that was the lower story, right? I did the best that I could. Um, well, last week, last Sunday after church, a friend invited me out, and uh, we, I wanted to talk. Actually, I invited the friend out, and I wanted to talk. And so he goes, let's meet over at the Starbucks over by our house. And so we met over at the Starbucks, and um, we went up. And we ordered our drinks, and then uh, we fought over who was going to pay, and then, um, then we walked away, all right? And, and as we're walking away, uh, the cashier goes, wait a minute. And so we turn around, and I go back, and the cashier says to me, are, are you the man that talked to us at the teen center? And I'm like, um, yeah. And she goes, oh, I, I recognized your voice. And I thought, well, that's really, that's really unique. That's, that's really cool. And so then I said, um, well, I'm, I'm really, really sorry about Blake. And she said, you know, it was such a blessing that you came and prayed with us. Thank you. And I said, what was your friend's name? And so she told me her friend's name. And she said that we were just sitting there and we were just, we didn't know what to do. And I had just said to my friend, let's pray when you walked up. And so then when I walked up and prayed with them, and when I left, she said, I said to my friend, that was no accident. And then um, I went back a couple days later to the same um, Starbucks, and she was working the same day again. And I was thinking, what are the chances that she would be working that day, last Sunday, that I could see her and, and run into her? I mean, wherever she worked, right? She's a student at Moore Park. But how was it that she, you know, I found her at a Starbucks in Newbury Park. That she lived out there in God's timing to bring us together. And she said to me, on Sunday after I saw you, I texted my friend. And the, we both said, this is no accident that God would bring that word to us at that time. And so in the lower story, we are grieving. In the lower story, we're going through difficulties. In the lower story, there's tragedy. There's mystery. We don't understand. But something is still happening in the upper story. And that God is doing something in our lives. And we don't need to give up. And so as we're going through the story, this is what God is trying to teach us and why it's so important for us to understand Genesis to Revelation, that we would understand what God is doing. And so right now we are in movement two, but we begin with movement one, and movement one is the story of the garden. 
And it was very short, as Genesis 1 through 11, but it helped us to see what God's original plan was and how sin corrupted it, but how God doesn't give up. And so would you stand up with me, and we're going to read the two movements together, okay? Um, so this gives you a chance to stretch and stay awake. Uh, but let's say the movement one. So this is the summary of the first couple of messages that we heard in the story. So let's say it together. In the upper story, God creates the lower story. His vision is to come down and be with us in a beautiful garden. The first two people reject God's vision and are escorted from paradise. Their decision introduces sin into the human race and keeps us from community with God. At this moment, God gives a promise and launches a plan to get us back. The rest of the Bible is God's story of how he kept that promise and made it possible for us to enter a loving relationship with him. And so that was the beginning of the story. But right now we are in the middle of movement two, which is the story of Israel from Genesis 12 to the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. And movement two talks about what God is doing in the midst of his people to bring us his Messiah, to bring us Jesus. So let's read out loud movement two, the summary of it. God builds a brand new nation called Israel. Through this nation, he will reveal his presence, power, and plan to get us back. Every story of Israel will point to the first coming of Jesus, the one who will provide the way back to God. You may be seated. And so every story that we're going through, through the story, is preparing us to reach and to meet God through Jesus. And so last week, or two weeks ago, like I said, we had a sermon that wasn't with, replaced the Ruth story. But I want us to see the video summary of Ruth, because that helps us to get ready for the portion of today's message, that we see what God is doing in the life of Israel, so that we will receive the Messiah through God's people, the Jewish people. So we're going to see uh, the video now. and two sons died. And Naomi was left alone with her two daughter-in-laws. She told them that she was going to move back to Israel and that they should return to their own families. But one of the women, Ruth, refused to leave Naomi. She said, wherever you go, I will go. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. So Naomi and Ruth moved back to Israel to begin a new life. One day, Ruth went to a field to pick up the grain that the farmers had left behind. Little did she know that the owner of the field was Boaz, a relative of Naomi. Boaz was kind to her and offered her to come find food whenever she wanted. Naomi was getting older, 
So she came up with a plan to provide for Ruth once she was gone. She suggested that Ruth sneak into Boaz's bedroom while he was sleeping, uncover his feet, and ask him to take care of her. Ruth took Naomi's advice. She uncovered Boaz's feet and laid down next to him. In the middle of the night, Boaz woke up startled. Ruth asked him to care for and protect her. Boaz agreed, but said he needed to first buy the land she lived on so that he would have the right to marry her. So Boaz brought together the decision makers of his town and asked for permission to buy the land. The leaders gave Boaz permission and prayed that God would help Ruth be a great wife. They were married and had a son named Obed, who would soon become the grandfather of one of the greatest leaders Israel had ever known. Okay, so as we see this story of Ruth and as we're going into understanding Samuel in just a minute, what we see is that God is working even when we don't know what he's doing. We don't know what God is doing. All we know is we're trying to do our best to follow God. Today's message is that if you follow God, you can trust. Regardless of the results, God is working something good. Regardless of what happens in our lives, as long as we're obeying God, you can trust that God is working something good. Now, even when we mess up, God's still working something good. But God prefers to work through the way of obedience, God wants us to obey. Ruth was an example of a godly person, a godly woman. And so Ruth ended up marrying who? What was his name? Boaz. And then they had a child. And that child had another child. Now, does anybody know the name of, of, Bo, of Obed's son? Jesse. And who was Jesse's son? Who is David. King David, right? The royal line of David is where our Messiah Jesus comes from. And so Boaz and Ruth are in the family line of Jesus. They didn't even know what God was doing at that time. We don't know. God will do things if we die before the Lord comes back. God will still do things through our lives and decisions that we make to change history and to make something good. In this world. But God wants us to be people who stand out in this world. He wants us to be people who will stand tall. And so today's message is called standing tall so that we don't hopefully fall hard. God doesn't want us to fall. He wants us to stand. And we have seen three women over the last few weeks of our study who stood tall for God. The first was a judge named Deborah. And then we saw Ruth, and we just saw her video. And today we begin with Hannah. And we learn through Hannah what it means to stand tall begins by standing still. To stand tall, we stand still by learning how to pray over the different difficulties and challenges of our lives. We stand still through prevailing Prayer. Prevailing means predominant, to be superior. To be prevailing means that even though, like you may hear about prevailing winds, and those are the winds that are over the atmosphere, that are moving storms in and out of our area. 
And we are going through storms in our lives, but there is a prevailing wind of God's grace and of God's movement that we cannot see. That when we bow down to pray, we see that God really is doing something. Now, the story of Hannah, we begin in 1 Samuel chapter 1. So if you'd open up your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 1. We're in the Old Testament. 1 Samuel chapter 1. And while you're looking at it, I'm just going to sort of tell the prequel. And so what's happening here is that there is a man who's married, and he has two wives, right? And in those days, that was permissible. And one of the wives' name was Penina, not Panini, Penina, okay? And Penina um, had children, but the other wife, Hannah, had no children. And so Penina was really mean to Hannah and treated her like a rival, and to irritate her would reminder that she was childless. And so Hannah wanted a child, not just because she was childless, but because she wanted to give to her husband. She wanted to do what God had put into her heart to do, which was to be a mother. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 10, we see Hannah reaching out to God. And it says there in verse 10, in her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord. Weeping bitterly. And she made a vow saying, Lord God Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. What is she saying? She's saying, God, if you give me what I want, I will give what I want back to you. God, if you give me what I long for, I will give to you that which you give to me as a gift. And so God answers her prayers. How did she pray? Look at verse 15. Now she had gone into the temple to pray, and the priest, his name is Eli, and Eli hears her praying, and and he's trying to understand why is she praying in such a fervent manner. And she says in verse 15, I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. And because she was praying so fervently, because she was praying out loud while she was in the temple, Eli thought she was drunk. And she says, no, I am not drunk. I am a passionate woman who is deeply troubled. But these are the key words for us. She poured out her soul. Where in your life is there hurt? Where in your soul is there trouble? It's an invitation from God to pour yourself out to him. To plead with him. To tell him what you want. To ask him to give you what you really feel you need. And so she did that. And God heard her prayers. And because God heard her prayers, she named the son that God gave to her Samuel. Samuel means God hears. God hears. And Samuel was God's gift to Hannah 
and to her husband. Now, a lot of times, there are people who will pray and say, God, give me what I want. I promise I'll live for you after that. But then God gives them what they want, and they don't do it. Many years ago, um, I was introduced to a man who needed a kidney transplant. And so um, I prayed for him and went with him and, and um, visited with him. And, and he said, you know, I want to give my life to God. I just need a new kidney. And so God gave him a new kidney. He got a kidney, kidney transplant. And the first transplant didn't work. And so the body rejected it. And so he was allowed one more transplant. And there was no guarantee that this one would work. And so he prayed and, and he said he committed his life to God. And, and he got a new kidney and it worked. And then after that, I followed up with him, and, and he wasn't following God at all. He wasn't walking with God. And I think that we all have probably gone through that at times, too. Where we've made commitments to God, and we said, you know, God, if you give me what I want, I promise I'll do this. And God gives us what we want. God wants us to know that he still gives. He didn't take back. He doesn't say, oh, you know, it's sort of like your heart's an Indian giver. You know, God just takes it back because we didn't do what, what we said we'd do. Now, God continues to give, but he wants us to be faithful. He wants us to have a prevailing faith, not just a prevailing prayer, so that when God gives us back what we want, we give back to God that very gift. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 27, it's time now. For Hannah to bring the boy back to the temple. And so she actually runs into Eli again. And she reintroduces herself and says, I was that woman that you saw praying years ago. But now I have prayed for this child. And the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life he will be given over to the Lord. She still got to see him. She still got to visit with him afterwards. She'd bring him little clothes. It was sort of nice. You read it in the Bible. She made little coats and she'd bring it to him. She still got to spend time with her son. But she kept her promise. She committed herself to obeying what God had asked of her and what she had said she would do for God. And so that's the application for you and me. Lord, as we pray, let us pour out our heart to God, but let us remember that the answer comes from God and that whatever we have said to God that we will do, let us do. Let us keep our part of the bargain, our part of the covenant. Let us give back to God. When God gives us salvation, our commitment is to follow hard after him. Our commitment in following God after he has given us Jesus is to obey Jesus and to follow him and to do the things, to live a life of truth, to live a life of quality, to live a life of virtue. And so this is the second lesson that we learn about how to stand tall. And we actually learn it through Eli, who was the priest, and Samuel, her son. And that is that we must learn to not only to stand still, but to be able to stand tall, we must also learn to stand against things that are wrong in this world. We must learn to stand against the gravity of compromise. Unfortunately, both Eli and Samuel compromised in their life. And, and we can't like judge them too harshly because I think all of us struggle with these things too. 
We struggle with our ability to keep up with what we know we ought to do. But we can do it. God will help us. Easy? No. Possible? Yes. God will give us the power to do it. But what we must stand against is hypocrisy. God wants us to stand against the things when we say that we know what is right, that we need to do it. God had told Eli that he was supposed to raise up his children in the way of the Lord, which you would expect of a priest. God had told him that he was to correct his sons. The Bible tells us in 1 Samuel that Eli had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And Hophni and Phinehas were very rebellious, and they abused the sacrificial system. They committed sexual immoral acts. And God had told Eli, you must reprimand your sons. You must restrain them. You must stop them. In 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 13, we see these words. It says, for I... God, I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons blasphemed God, and he failed to restrain them. And so Eli, even though he was a priest, and even though God used him, he didn't live fully for the Lord. He compromised. There was hypocrisy in his life. That's a danger for us as well. Even Samuel, who was committed to the Lord, he had free will. He was in the temple. He lived. He grew up in the temple. He later became a judge over Israel. God still used him. But in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, the Bible says, when Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. Raising children is not easy. It's very hard. And it was true for Eli, and it was true for Samuel. But God had expected them both to raise godly children, to help them to follow after the Lord, and they didn't do it. And they allowed this hypocrisy to grow in their life. Is it easy to raise children? No. Can we judge Eli and Samuel outside of our own disobedience? No. But did they do what was wrong Yes. Should we learn from their example? Yes. Should we try better? Yes. Does God help us to do it? Yes. The other day I was at the mall and uh, I was trying to do some reading and, and just some studying there. And um, a family came up and they sat next to me and there was a little girl and I think she had a couple brothers there. And I tried not to stare, but the little girl kept just yelling and yelling and yelling four words that parents love. I don't want to! I don't want to. I mean, I must have heard that 16 times. You know, I don't want to. And it just reminded me of, of my parent young, when my children were young. You know, I heard it too. And if you're a parent, you've heard it. And if you're a child, you've said it. But you know what? We all say it still, right? To God. 
God tells us what we ought to do. We may not say it out loud, right? But in our minds and in our hearts, we're saying, I want to. God says, I want you to obey me. I don't want to. You know, and, and I hate this, right? You know, mom goes, do I have to give you a timeout? Right? Like, nobody ever gets a timeout, and it never does any good. Um, you know, my parents just hit me. That, that worked much better. Um, you know, it's just like, I don't want to needs to be taken out of us, right? But we need to remember that it's still in us. Even as adults, we don't want to. But God wants us to. And it is the challenge of our lives that we don't, like Eli and Samuel, grow up and just have an outward appearance of religion, an outward appearance of faith, but that we have a genuine, real faith on the inside of our lives, that we're authentic, that we deal with our sins, we confess our sins, we work through our sins. We don't think we're better than other people, but we try to be better. God needs godly leaders starting in the home. God needs godly leaders in the church. He needs godly leaders in schools. He needs godly leaders in community. He needs godly leaders in the workplace. And this is the place for us to live out our faith, to stand against compromise, and to live out the truth. The second thing that we all struggle with is we must stand against the compromise of conformity. God wants us to be a different people. God wants us to stand out through our character, through our words, and through our lives. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, we see that because Samuel did not raise his children in the way that the people wanted his children to be the leaders, that the Bible says, so all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as the other nations have. And so the consequence of what happened from Samuel's inability to raise his children in the right way was that the people then didn't want his children to be leaders, which was understandable, but instead they went against God and now they wanted a king, a human king. They didn't want God to be their king. God wants to be our king. He doesn't want us to conform to the ways of the world and let other people or the system of the world or the values of the world be our leaders. He wants us to bow down to him as our only king. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, Verse 6, it says, but when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their God. And so Samuel, even though he had sinned, God's still using him. And we're going to see that in just a bit. That even though we are weak, even though we still have flesh, even though we have struggles, just like Eli and just like Samuel, we shouldn't do what they did. And yet, even when we sin, God still uses us. But the message now that God was giving to Samuel for the people was don't conform to this world. Don't let your schools be your king. Don't let it, what the TV ads be your king. Don't let social media be your king. Don't let money be your king. Don't let materialism be your king. 
Don't let popularity be your king. Don't want to be like everybody else. Rather, be like your king. Be like God. Be like Jesus. God wants to be our king. And the Bible actually says that God was already their king. And so what they were actually doing through disobedience is dethroning God from their heart. And that's a danger that we have to be careful of too. See, God is our king. If we've accepted Jesus Christ, if we committed our life to follow God, if we made that promise to God from God's promise to give us eternal life, then we have responsibility. And that is not to conform to this world, not to be hypocritical, not to compromise, but to learn to stand against that which is wrong. But thirdly, we must also learn to stand for what is right. And I, I think that it's very fair criticism of Christians in our world when those in the world look at us and go, well, I know what you Christians are against, but we don't know what you are for. We know you're against this, 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 and this, but what are you for? And this is where God gives us the great opportunity in our lives to show people what we are for. We are for people to be able to know the true freedom of what it means to be away from the things that hold us back and to free us to do the things that are right. We are for the things that bless other people and bring them into a life that they are able to enjoy life the way God made it to be. We are for people to be able to know that God offers forgiveness. We are for people to know that God accepts us and gives us grace. We are for people that are able to show people a kind of love that goes beyond the type of wimpy, sentimental love in this world and hangs in there and difficult times and goes into difficult places and goes into dangerous places and shows a love that goes beyond what normal people might do. That God has made us to stand for his king, for our king, and for his kingdom. God wants us to learn that we do this through obedience to his word. Now remember, Samuel had already been reprimanded because his children hadn't done what God had wanted and yet, at the same time, God still uses Samuel, and he still gives a message. And remember, the people, too, they had been hypocritical. The people, too, had compromised. But God doesn't just write them off. In 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 14, the message of Samuel to the people is, If you fear the Lord and serve and obey him, and do not rebel against his commands, and if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good. So in other words, even though they weren't supposed to ask for a human king, God gave them a human king. And even though they weren't supposed to have a human king, God said, you know what? But if that human king follows after me and you follow after me, it'll still go good for you. In verse 20 and 21 of 1 Samuel 12, and then verses 24 and 25, the Bible says this. Do not be afraid, Samuel replied. You have done all this evil. You do not, yet do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn away after useless idols. Be sure to fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things He has done for you. God is saying, you know what? Even though you've done wrong, there's still hope. Even though you've been disobeyed, you've disobeyed me, there can still be blessings if you will obey me. 
Now, that's just great news for all of us because how many of us continue to struggle with sin, right? You know, I'll raise my hand. It's a struggle. But what God says is that if you will go back to me, if you will repent, I will still bring you into a place of goodness. I will still bless you. But you must be committed to serving me with all your heart. Verse 20, um, 20, 20, verse 20. Serve the Lord with all your heart. And then verse 24. Be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. God still draws us back to himself. He wants us to obey God's love language, and we talk about this today, you know, there's the five love languages book, which is really popular, and there's different love languages like touch or gifts or time, but what do you think God's love language is? God's love language is obedience. What makes God feel good about our relationship with him? It's when we obey. It's when we do the things that he tells us to do because they're good for us and because it extends his kingdom. It helps him to know that we indeed are bowing to him as our king. We are obeying him. Jesus said, if you love me, you will like what I command. No. It says, if you love me, you will obey what I command. And Jesus says, if you obey my commands, you will remain in my love. Just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. Obedience brings us into the heart of God. Obedience brings us into a deeper relationship with God. Obedience helps us to not only know God's commands, but to love his commands, as the psalmist says in 119. That we love God's word and we love God as we know his word. When Jesus and God are our king, we commit everything to him. We commit our character to him. It means that our actions are actions that are intangible ways, that we, intangible ways, we do the things that God calls us to do in obedience. Our ethics are ways that we show that God is our king. Our morals are ways that we show that God is our king. My relationships are opportunities to live the way that God tells me to live. My mind is the place where God transforms my thoughts so that I can be more and more like Jesus. My eyes are the receptacles of the things that change me on the inside. So I commit those things to my king. So I cover up my eyes to not see the things that I ought not see. And I open my eyes to see the things that I ought to. My words I commit to my king. So that my words will be the things that I say to other people will be things that God might say to them, that I bless them and that I treat them with dignity and gentleness and quality the way I myself want to be treated. My integrity, what I do in the dark when nobody else is watching reveals how I see God as my king. My goals, what I want in life reveal if God is my king. Do they please him? Do they bless him? Do they extend his kingdom? My dreams, 
Do they honor God? Are they things that God would want me to dream about and to dream for? God is my king, and so I commit to him my work. I commit to him my choices. God is my king, and so I commit to him not just my possessions, but my desire for possessions. I commit to him my money. I commit to him my home. I commit to him all that he has given to me. I commit to him my health. I commit to him the way that I look. I accept what I am. And I don't want to be like the world. I commit to God my faith. I commit to God the way that I pray and when I pray, as Gary shared with us. I commit to him what I pray about and who I pray for and I trust him for the things that I ask him. I pray and I commit to God what I read in his word so that I will obey. I commit to God my commitment to him as you are committed to him today to worship him in gathered sacred assembly. I commit to God the things that extend the reality of his kingship in my life. And the more and the more and the more and the more that we obey our king, the more and the more and the more we'll love him. And our lives will continue to work out in ways that honor the kingdom of God. Let us pray.